If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. This episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing my pal, Matt Polson. Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Omaze, the online fundraising platform that offers people the chance to win once-in-a-lifetime experiences while supporting nonprofits around the world. Since founding it in 2012, the company has raised more than $130 million for more than 350 charities and was recently named one of the 50 world's most innovative companies by Fast Company Magazine. Matt was really considerate in sharing his personal near-death experience that tremendously changed his perspective. And Matt broke down how he led Omaze from a self-funded small startup to a global organization with over 100 employees. Please enjoy my interview with Matthew Polson. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Jeff, thanks for having me. Where are you in the world today? Um, I am out in Long Island. Cool. And you're a West Coast guy originally, correct? You're, you're born and raised West Coast? I am. I'm from Laguna Beach. Uh, I live in Venice. I'm just, I'm out here in kind of a, a, a friend commune for a little while. Love that. Love that. I, I, um, I'm in the dad commune, um, <laughs> you know, with the mother-in-law and the wife and child. Um, I romance the times that I was in the friend communes. <laughs> well, I'm excited for the times when I get to be waiting for a child and, and having family around. It sounds like a, a beautiful experience. It is fair enough. Um, I appreciate that. Well, you, you, as you know, I'm a huge fan of you and Omez. you know, I'm, I, I really am happy to call you a friend. And, uh, you know, just to, you know, I, I've, I've done my little intro on Omaze, but would love for you to give the listeners a little insight into the company. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm a big, huge fan of Jeff Rosenthal and Summit and, and honored Thank to call you. you a friend. Um, you have given so much to our community of entrepreneurs around the world for so long um, and not just driv- driven um, business creation, but impact. And in fact, you know, we got the first investor for Omaze on the Summit Series boat back in 2012. Is it 2012 or 11? 2011. 11. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So you guys played a role in that as, as, uh, as I'm sure you have in so many other partnerships from business to, I met a couple the other night that had met at Summit and I'm sure that's happened a hundred times. So in terms of what Omaze is, we raise money and awareness for charity by offering the chance to win once in a lifetime experiences. We've done everything from be mentored by Michelle Obama to ride in a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger and crush things to win a Lamborghini where Pope Francis hands you the keys, which was probably the most extraordinary experience we've ever done. I had to go to the Vatican and, and pitch Pope Francis. Um, Love it. 
Where we're different than most people that do this is rather than make it so one high net worth individual can pay twenty five or fifty thousand dollars to have one of these experiences, we make it so that anybody in the world can donate ten dollars for the chance to win, um, and then we use our background in content and storytelling and performance marketing to spread these around the world. And as a result, um, we can net two to sometimes forty x for our charity partners versus alternative fundraising, and then we're a for profit company and we take a percentage of the proceeds. Incredible. And that number is, I believe, it's over 100 million for over 350 charities around the world. Correct? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have now. We have now netted over 150 million actually for charities. That's incredible. Um, and I know that you guys were named one of Fast Company's, you know, most innovative companies. And what I what I especially love about your model is that it really democratizes access to both these experiences, but also being a part of these impact stories. You know, for me. You know, I, I guess when I was younger and I had, you know, only a little bit of capital to my name to go to like a charity I cared about and give them $10 or $20, it felt like such an also ran thing. Or perhaps I'm, you know, I'm partially interested in supporting a good cause, but I'm really interested in having a great experience. I just love that you've offered sort of this, you know, branch to people that aren't like, you know, the converted to get involved in these cause areas that matter so much. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I... I totally you know that was obviously the core of our mission i mean the we were started with kind of a similar experience that you had in that you know me and my buddy were at an event that magic johnson was hosting for the boys and girls club back when we were in grad school and he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to a lakers game but it was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room and we were in the room but not high net worth individuals. We were the guys who get invited last minute to fill the table. And we sat there and watched as the auction went up to $15,000 and we couldn't afford to participate. And Magic was our childhood hero. And when we were driving home that night, we're like, that just doesn't make any sense. You know, like Magic has fans around the world, not just in that room. And in fact, the people who can't afford to be in that room you'll probably be more grateful to meet him than the people who can. And so if we made it available to all of them online for the chance to win and reinforce what you just said about, you know, making them understand that every, every contribution matters for even if it's $5, it can have a massive ripple effect. Totally. And you mentioned your background in storytelling before you founded Omaze. What were you doing? Yeah. So um, my co-founder Ryan and I, um, we you know, we went to college together, came down to LA to get into entertainment, specifically focused on cause content. We had a passion for using storytelling to inspire action. And because the beauty of a story in its essence is that it enables you to connect with someone whose experiences are different than your own. And when you do that, you want to help that person. And when you do that, you feel more connected. So it's a virtuous cycle. And we wanted to help perpetuate that cycle. And so we did a bunch of different projects along those lines. Um, we were the first directors on this thing called Live Earth, which was the biggest concert ever thrown. It was on seven continents in one night to raise awareness for climate change. Um, and we yeah, everyone from the Rolling Stones to Kanye. Um, we were the early producers on a documentary series called Girl Rising about girls' education in the developing world that was funded by mm -hmm. Oprah and Queen Reign of Jordan and Meryl, Meryl Streep was the narrator. We spent a couple of years traveling around the world interviewing the world's greatest thinkers, a couple hundred Nobel Prize winners and MacArthur Genius Grant recipients. And then we did the Clinton Foundation's big 10th anniversary global television concert event with everybody from Bono and Jay-Z to Bill Gates and Lady Gaga. And so we were doing that work and, and you know, we were working with these people that were obviously like very influential and authentically wanted to do good, but we just didn't feel like we were doing that much good. You know, we felt like we were creating a lot of awareness around these projects, but we weren't necessarily creating a lot of impact. And that was kind of endemic to the cause content space. So that, so we decided we needed to figure out a better model to do what we were passionate about, decided to go to business school and try to surround ourselves with people smarter than us. And then when we were in school, we went to that Magic Johnson event. For me, I'm, I'm just so fascinated with how you chose Omaze as a path. Perhaps there should just be more things like Omaze out in the world. But you guys have really utilized the 21st century tech platforms and APIs and performance marketing programs and combined it with such like a practical approach 
to getting cash to these organizations that need it. So take us through those initial days. Like what was what was it like when you guys were raising the first money? Is it the same company now as it was then in terms of the theme or in terms of what the intention was? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I would say it is very much the same company in terms of the intention. I mean, we articulate it a little bit differently now, but the spirit is the same. And what we set out to do is very much the same. You know, I think the big difference is like we had no idea what we were doing at the beginning. <laughs> like literally, yeah. we were very bad at what we were doing along across like almost every dimension. You know, and I think part of it is like I think what you like a lot of people don't realize when they go into being like doing a startup is that everyone is scared and we were scared. Ryan and I, when we left business school, neither of us, like, you know, we had done documentaries and those, those, you know, cause content before school, but like, you don't make much money doing that. And so we came, we both left school, you know, 200,000 in debt. I mean, we had, you know, not worked really in, and so we, you know, we came out with, and we both passed up, he passed up a job at Goldman and I passed up a job at McKinsey um, to do this. And so we, we were definitely, wow, this is like pretty irrational. Um, and then, you know, I think I, I always thought like entrepreneurs, like you think about like Musk or Branson and they're like, they're, they're just like courageous and they, they're, they're bold and they see every, you know, every step with courage and prescience and anytime they fail, that's just a launching pad to success. And then, so I remember being like, so spending so many nights like sleepless. Cause like Amaze didn't work at all for like the first year, like our first experience raised $780, you know, and it was be the guest judge mm-hmm. and cupcake wars. And like, you know, we were, we were about, um, you know, after we'd raised our seed round and we had to go out and raise again, we had like a month left of cash when we got our big break. What was that? What was the big break? It was breaking bad actually was our big break ironically. But yeah, what had happened was there was another company that had launched that was doing the same thing, which I know, you know, those, those guys, and they were really smart entrepreneurs. And we had to have this thing set up with Brian Cranston around breaking bad. And then they had done another campaign with Samuel L. Jackson that raised like 180,000. And the most we'd ever raised at that point was 18,000. So they were literally 10 X better than us. And they knew we had this with Brian and they went to Brian to say like, Hey, um, you know, you guys should, you should do this with us. Like we're much more better, which is very fair thing to say. And so then we got the word from Brian's team of, Hey, you know, Brian's actually going to go to this other platform. And we were, that was devastating. Cause like, that was our, we thought that was our last chance to prove that like we could like, you know, get a case study to go out and fundraise off of. And so, you know, we called back like the person on his team that it, like we were, that we knew and, and we're close with and, and said, like, he's got to do it with us. She's like, I'm sorry. She's like, you know, but like, I don't know, like we have to, you know, he's going to go his other direction and he's, you know, he's going to call and let them know tomorrow. And I was like, well, where is he right now then? She's like, what are you talking about? And it's like, I need to talk to him right now. Like, and she's like, well, he's at this charity event. And so we snuck into the charity event. How'd you do it? How'd you get in? You know, I found that you can sneak in most places if you walk by just pretending like you belong. So that's what we did. You know, we dressed, we dressed the part. And we, um, and it was at this famous person's house. I won't name, name the name, but like, it, I had actually catered at that house like three or not three, I don't know, many years earlier. And so I kind of knew, I knew the house. So anyway, we got in there and then we found Brian and explained, you know, like, Hey, what are these guys from Amaze? And, and, you know, you, you, we were going to do this campaign together and now you're doing it with someone else. He's like, it's nothing personal guys, but, uh, it's just, these guys raise a lot more money and it's really about the charity. We said, we understand that, you know, he's like, and he's sending these guys, you know, so they can raise 180,000. And I said, well, we can raise 200,000. And he's like, well, what's the most you've ever raised? And I said, 18,000. <laughs> and he's like, well, how are you going to do that? And I was like, we have no choice, you know, like literally like we will do anything it takes. We have a lot of creative ideas. Like we think we can break through. We're going to put our whole heart into this thing and we, and we will deliver. He kind of just looked at us and maybe felt sorry for us. I don't know what it is. He was like, all right, like let's do it. And so he took the leap on us. We ended up raising 300000 with that campaign. And then he introduced us to Aaron Paul, and we did the finale of Breaking Bad, and that raised $1.7 and that's like what put us on the map. Unbelievable. And I remember you telling me about the Aaron Paul story. Did you guys take the, the RV from the show to the finale? Yeah. With, with the winner of the... Yeah, yeah with the winner. And we, like, we had to do this like pyrotechnic thing where we like let off the yellow smoke like they do in the show nice so it wasn't the actual one from the show because the actual one from the show doesn't drive but the 
but we went and found one on Craigslist that looked identical to it that like that Sony and everyone signed off on as like, okay, that'll pass. Cause it literally like it was the exact model. That's amazing. But I was so nervous that we were going to blow the thing up. Like, cause we had to do this stunt and we were like, yeah, we were so nervous. Oh, incredible. We'll be back with more art of the hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, there's so many directions I want to take this interview, but uh, you mentioned the Pope, and I have to ask because these are such amazing stories. So, wait a minute. So, you went to the Vatican to pitch the Pope? Yeah, I did. I just don't even understand how that, how that initiates. Yeah. I mean, the, well, that, that's a crazy story too. I can tell it. It's like a, it's like a five minute story, but I can, can, yeah. I mean, so basically the way that, the way that, the way that that happened actually started with, we did this experience with Bono and basically what happened was, so to step back, there's this, there's the, which led to the Pope. So to, to step back, there's this, there's this young girl who at the time was 15 years old living up in Northern California. Her name was Chloe and Chloe was born with a clubbed foot and she went to high school and she was picked on by a bunch of mean girls. And then it escalated to one point. They pinned her down during lunch in front of the whole school. Six girls like held her down on the lunch tables and pulled her shoe off to show everyone what her deformed foot looked like. She was obviously traumatized. She went back to her house. Um, she like locked herself in her room. She wasn't coming out. And her dad was obviously like very, you know, concerned about was she going to hurt herself. And so he tried to talk to her. And he talked about how he was this huge fan of U2. You know, maybe she would like listening to them. And she like found this one song called Invisible, which is this anthemic song that basically says like, you can't see me, but I'm here. And she just like latched onto that song. 
And she started listening to it every single day on loop and eventually like went back to school and, you know, and kind of like started to address what she was working through with that song as inspiration. At the same time, her dad, we had, we had offered this um, campaign to meet Bono backstage to benefit Red and her dad, Dane, had entered and he won. And so they got to go meet Bono. And oh, so this is so awesome. Okay. Yeah. And so, and obviously we don't know any of this. So we get there and I'm, and this is early in May. So like, I'm literally like flying to, to be there to make sure this goes okay. Cause obviously like, it's a big deal. It was our first campaign with Bono. And so we go backstage and it's me and Chloe, who is a 15 and on crutches. And like, you could tell she's got this weight on her. I don't know any of this backstory. I just can tell like there's something going on with her and her dad. And we're in this like little room. And then Bono comes in and the first thing he does is there's this red guitar because it was ben- to benefit red. So he signs the guitar, which that point becomes important later. And then, and then he says hello to the dad. And then he says, he says, you know, tell me your story. And then his dad, Dane says, you know, this isn't about my story. Like this is about my daughter, Chloe's story. And he says, well, what's your story, Chloe? And she says, well, I was assaulted and your song invisible helped me get through it. And Bono said, you were insulted? Like they, they called you names? And she said, no, I was assaulted. And the way that she said it, like had this gravity. And again, like, I, like uh, obviously I didn't know the backstory. Of course, Bono didn't know the backstory, but he's clearly a very emotionally intelligent person and you could just feel it. And so he says, well, how did the song Invisible help you? And she said, you know, it gave me the strength to not hurt myself. It gave me a strength to go back to school. It gave me the strength to stand up to those girls. It gave me the strength to stand up to my school to make sure it doesn't happen to somebody else. You know, and he just looked at her and he said, well, you know why you're able to do that? He said, because the arc of the universe bends towards justice and love. And when you have right on your side, it's like this big fist, not to hurt people with, but to fight for what's right. And you could like see in that moment, like this, like the way he was saying it was impacting her. And then he, and he said, you know, what's your passion, Chloe? And she said, she kind of got embarrassed again. She said, well, I haven't figured it out. You know, I, I don't know. And he said, well, that's okay. He said, we have a ri- prayer in my family and we're not a, we're not a righteous family. We say this prayer in the church, but we also say this prayer in the pub. And our prayer is I am available for work. He said, make yourself available for work and your passion will be revealed to you. And you could literally see this weight just lifting off this girl. Like it was so, I mean, obviously like Bono is so much more poetic than I can ever be in recreating it. But like literally the moment was so, I've never seen a moment like that in my life. You could literally see this weight lifting off of her. You could see this person transforming before your very eyes. So then Chloe goes home. She decides, okay, I'm going to use this for good. She starts telling other girls who've been bullied about this story and like what Bono told her and all that kind of stuff. And then word gets out about this and like a parent at another school asks her to come talk to like some kids who've been bullied at their school. And then another school asks her and then another school. And all of a sudden she's like going and like doing these like talks and she decides I'm going to, I'm going to name this thing. I'm going to call it like staying beautiful where people embrace their differences. She then like, it becomes such a thing that she gets invited to do a TEDx talk. So she does a TEDx talk about staying beautiful, embracing and what Bono taught her. There's a publisher from Penguin Random House there. They get a they give her a book deal. She gets she then gets invited to go speak around the world about what had happened. And she goes on this tour helping people. And at one of the tours she went to, there was someone from the Vatican there. And they heard the story. And then they went up to her and said, What's this Omaze thing? And she explained what it was. And then they asked if they she could she could put them in contact. And so then the person from the Vatican reached out to us and that's how I ended up at the Vatican. One other thing is, um, just shows you like how the universe conspires sometimes the, you know, I said there's the red guitar that Bono signed as we were leaving. Um, the dad said to Bono after this like magical moment of like the hug and the whole thing and said, you know, Hey, by the way, like, what's the story with this guitar? When was the last time you played it? And Bono's like, oh man, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not good at keeping track of those things, but we have someone whose job it is to keep track of those things, you know, and I'll make sure that you can get in contact with them. So then like the de- Dane emailed the guy, his name was Gary, and Gary emailed back without having any context of the story saying the last time Bono played this guitar was in Dublin in the studio when he was writing the song Invisible. Wow. Well, I just love that. I just love that, you know, and, and I, I want to talk more about Omaze, but it's kind of a perfect transition because 
you know, one of the other, uh, I'd say magic surrealism that, that has touched your life. Um, and, and that, that yielded the saying is one of the things I've heard you say before is that optimism is a superpower. And, uh, you had a personal life experience and your death experience that I'd love for you to share with the listeners. Cause I know it had a huge impact on you. The, so what happened to me is, um, when I was born or so basically two years ago, last week I was like declared dead and they brought me back to life. And the background is when I was born, my stomach was twisted in a knot and I was supposed to die when I was born. And then they did this crazy surgery that saved me obviously. And then the scar tissue from the surgery broke off all these years later, um, creating this bowel obstruction. And, but I didn't know that at the time. All I knew that my stomach was hurting my stomach's, you know, it's just part of what I've lived with my whole life, but this felt like particularly acute. And so I called my friend who's a doctor and I said, Hey, you know, I'm hosting this dinner party tonight. I really want to do it, but my stomach's hurting. Like, do you think I need to go to the hospital? And he's like, yeah, this could be your, your appendix bursting. I'm not sure, but better safe than sorry. So he tells me to go to the hospital. So I go to the hospital and it gets a lot worse. And and I'm in this kind of crazy pain, but we can't figure out what's going on. And the COO of Omaze comes, her name is Helen, um, because I was supposed to be meeting her at the time. And then my parents come and they do all these tests. It's inconclusive. So they, about like 1030 at night, they say to Helen and my parents, right, you guys go home. We're going to keep Matt overnight. And if he's not better by the morning, then we'll do surgery then. And so Helen drives home to her house. She pulls into her driveway you know, at this point, it's about 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, she, something is telling her not to get out of the car. Something is telling her to go back to the hospital. And, you know, Helen is British and a COO and very serious. She's not like a Venice, you know, listen to the cosmos type person, but the voice was undeniable. And so she decided that to go back to the hospital and, and if she had not driven back to the hospital, I would have probably died 45 minutes later because my blood pressure had plummeted. It was down to 92 over 50, which is like you really shouldn't be getting oxygen to your brain, but the machine somehow had not alerted the nurses. And so I was literally just fading away. Oh my God. So she came in, she saw the machine. She had been in the hospital with her grandmother like for a while, a couple months earlier. So she kind of knew her way around. And so she went and got the nurse and said, look at this. this, this looks really bad. And he's like, that can't be right. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be getting oxygen to his brain. So then he went to do a, get, do another test, got the same result. He was going to do another test. And she's like, no more tests, like get the doctor. She went to, got the doctor, doctor came in. She took one look and called in the crash team. They rushed me down to surgery. What's a, what's a crash team? It's like the, like, when someone's, they think someone's dying, they like send, they have these teams that are like SWAT teams essentially that are on call that like, you'll, you'll see like 10 people rush into a room, like on Grey's Anatomy or whatever, you know, it's like when just like all these people converge and they're equipped to like transport you real fast and like address whatever the acute thing is. So they all rush in the room. They rush me down into surgery, come out of surgery. And they say to my mom, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's a bowel obstruction. The bad news is his heart rate is continuing to plummet and we don't know why. And he's in critical condition. And so then, and your mom, your mom is a nurse, correct? My mom, uh, she works at a hospital. She's not a nurse. Okay. She works in got a book, but she knows her way. She's, you know, she knows her way around a hospital. And so, yeah, so yeah, then a couple hours pass and she goes down to get my dad and my brother and she comes back upstairs and she hears over the loudspeaker, code blue in room 437. And, um, as you mentioned, my mom works in a hospital, but so she knows that means flatline and she knows that's my room. So she rushes upstairs and she gets to the door and the nurse says, I'm sorry, you can't come in. This is really serious. And she said, look, I was there when he came in this world. If he's leaving this world right now, I'm going to be in that room. So she let her in the room and they were doing the compressions and they were doing the electric shock treatment, but my body wasn't responding. I was flatlining. And so my mom, at first she started to crumble. You know, it's, it's one thing to lose a child. It's another thing to be in the room 
when it's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at the same time, my dad was outside with my brother and this doctor came out and said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother, hey, we lost this guy, he's gone. And so my brother pushed my dad in the room saying, you need to be there with mom. And so when my dad came in, if you can kind of picture my mom's face to the right towards me and my dad comes in from her left and he's crying so loudly as he enters the room it causes her to turn away from me to say like, Gary, you know, you got to be quiet or they're going to kick us out of this room. You know, my dad was like, if I can't cry right now, like when do I get to cry? But you know, she's, she, when she turned to, to, to say that to him, she said she saw something that she'd never seen before in a hospital. She said every nurse and every staff member and every doctor in the ICU had just gravitated outside the window. And there was like 40 of them. And she said, they look like this silent church choir, just sending in this positive energy. And she was so moved by these people that were sending love to someone that they didn't even know. It was like this transcendent spiritual experience for her. And it just kind of filled her up with strength. And she kind of took a deep breath and she started coaching me. You know, she turned back and she just said, Matthew David Polson, these people are fighting to save your life. They're fighting so hard to bring you back, but you're not fighting hard enough. You need to show them you're a fighter. They're fighting to save your life. And, you know, they said it was this surreal experience watching because here's this 65-year-old mom who's in this room that you're not, no one's supposed to be in except for the medical staff. And, you know, the flat line went on for four and a half minutes, which is a long time and they don't Mm -hmm. usually keep fighting that long, but because she was there fighting, they kept fighting. But at one point, you know, my mom said, you know, she just realized like this has been going on a long time. And she, you know, because she works in a hospital, she knows how long these things usually go. And so she starts to think, Oh my God, like, I cannot believe this. We're going to lose him. And if I lose him, like I'm going to lose my husband and how's this happening? You know, her mind started to go there and, you know, right as it was going there. The main doctor who was administering the CPR and the shocks, you know, he, uh, he started to shake his head as if to say like, Oh, this is, this is done. And she, you know, as he did that, she said, no, 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 please. Like, please don't call it. And as she said that he said, wait a second. And he turned back and said, I think we have a pulse. And all of a sudden my eyes just opened up and I popped up and then I looked over at my mom and then I looked over at my dad and I was on my side and I kind of just like slowly lifted my right arm and gave a thumbs up. Oh my God. (laughs) What a story, dude. First and foremost, happy resurrection anniversary. (laughs) Thank you. Secondly, your mom deserves like the mom equivalent of the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) (laughs) She is a superhero. She's a force in nature. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches 
We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to, you know get into, you know, optimism as a superpower and, you know, how it applies to your work today. But like, you know, now it's been two years since this has happened and and I'm sure it changed your perspective on everything. Yeah, it really has. You know, it's, I mean, it's still like, I, I learn, I think about it every day. I learn from it. I mean, the lessons are still revealing themselves to me. I think one of the things that like, it's changed my perspective on are just like, is like what it means to be a best friend to yourself, you know, like I, I used to be so much more ego driven than I realized, you know, not in a, I don't, I mean, you knew me obviously before. I don't, I hope that you wouldn't describe me as like egotistical or like an asshole or, you know, but I would have said debonair, hilarious, talented. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. I was fishing for compliments there. You know, I, I used to care so much about what people think in an unhealthy way. And I used to compare myself to people all the time. You know, you and I are surrounded by extraordinary people and I would compare myself to them mm-hmm. and, and remind myself of why I didn't stack up, you know, and that frame of reference was just so unhealthy. And so that like this helped change that in a fundamental way. And part of the reason it did is because, you know, I had this kind of like come back to the light experience that just made me realize how interconnected we all are. And I could feel the love that people were sending me. And it just made me, you know, have such a a broader perspective on these things. And also recognize that like, you know, like when I left the hospital, the doctor, you know, he sat at the edge of my bed and, and he was like, look, when I, he was guys a a world renowned surgeon. He's like, look, when I finish my career 30 years from now, and I'm talking about the most extraordinary case I've ever seen, this is going to be it you know, we had you at 0% chance of survival for two days. And the fact that we have you going home with your full faculties, we have no medical explanation for that. And I said, well, I mean, do you have a guess? You know, he said, look, we were inspired by your mom. Like there was a whole another day and a half after the, they resuscitated me where I was, they had me at 0% chance of survival still. And they had to do these other surgeries. And before like the second surgery, my mom was grabbing the doctors by the cheek and she was saying, look, this is my son, but today this is your son and this is your brother and his company is trying to do good in the world and you need to help them. He said, so we were motivated by that. But outside of that, there were larger forces at play. And I said, well, as a man of science, how do you define those larger forces? And he said, it was love and it was optimism that brought you back. And I really believe that to be true, you know? And so what I believe is, possible now, like in terms of kind of shaping your own future. And, and I get careful of like the world's manifestation or like you can get into the world, the, the world of like the secret and some of these things that I think lack acknowledgement of it's not just about thoughts, it's about actions, but do you believe that your thoughts and your intentions travel much farther and can shape and can change the trajectory of things and can change, you know, that, that energy is like, we feel that and it's powerful and we don't have great scientific explanation for it just yet, but I think we will, but we all know it's there. And so, um, and so when I got let rid of the ego, a lot of the stuff that would hold me back, I think I'm able to express more love now and being able to express more love comes from getting rid of fear because the opposite of love is not hate, it's fear. And so, and mm-hmm. I had so much fear. 
And then as a result of expressing more love, you start to also realize the power of optimism and like what can change in the world. And, and you know, and I think we're feeling that more than ever right now. Definitely. There is some scientific credence to this that, you know, is not that widely read, but there is a great book called Synchronicity. It was all about the birthplace of scenario planning in the Royal Dutch Shell Corporation. And the idea being that, you know, if they had to take the spice through, through regions that were going to have some kind of upheaval, then they needed a doctrine plan for, that's what the you know, U.S. military calls it, for how to deal with both negative and positive scenarios. And then you get to invest over a long period of time along those, you know, potential outcomes. And what they realized is that when they tack towards the more optimistic outcome, it happened more often. Mm. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly a believer that if you think you can't, you're right, you know? Right. Absolutely. And I'm curious for you, you know, I, and I, I feel you on, on, you could feel the love of your friends. Like, it sounds like it turned on some faculties for you, literal sensitivities that you might not have had. How did it manifest inside of like, you know, in a company, it's not just friendships. It's also, you know, how you lead, how you manage. Did it change the way that you operate in that fashion as well? Yeah, absolutely. I learned to kind of, with our team, almost love more and care less. And so what I mean by that is like, I'm more, I'm less afraid to express my gratitude for people. I do that. I actually make that a regular practice. Like I send an email to a different person on our team every single week and to a different friend. I send a video every single week saying like, this is why I'm grateful for you. So I do that more. It's awesome. But at the same time, I used to, in some ways, I think care so much about what our team thought of me because I cared so much about them. And I'm so grateful that people even go on this journey, you know, like, I mean, you know how it is, you're the beginning of an entrepreneurial journey and you're doing every job. And then sometimes you, every once in a while you wake up, you're like, wow, there's like 130 people that work here. And like, that's just, I can't believe they work here. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I remember when, like there was two of us, but what I, I, I assess my leadership and like, my impact as a leader over a much longer dimension now. So like, I know there's certain things that can maybe make people feel uncomfortable or challenged or, or a short term discomfort for them or, or that I'm willing to push more because I think well down the road, like they'll recognize that this was in their interest in the longer term. And as long as I feel like I'm operating from that place, I can like, I'm much better absorbing that. I don't, I don't worry as much about, being liked as much as I do about feeling like that I'm actually serving them and then serving this greater vision, you know? Um, and so I think it's changed me in that way. And, and then also like my capacity to, you know, get above the level of the problem. You and I both have a, a, a teacher that we love named Jim George that like talks a lot about that as a problem can never be solved at the level of the problem. So I think I used to overweight every single thing and I'd have my identity so tied up in Omaze that with this broader perspective that I have now, it enables you to kind of process through things much quicker, see decisions much more quickly, recognize what really matters and what doesn't on, a, on an easier capacity. I do want to transition a little bit, you know, back to Omaze and just because I think it's really important like you said, like, you know, you are working on something that is in service of this greater good. And, you know, I think it's also really important that it's a, it's a for-profit business, you know, that has investors and that has capital to spend to scale. And I think that there's an ongoing debate about, you know, impact and like about altruism, like the selflessness of altruism in a sense, or that, you know, appropriate philanthropy is when you receive nothing in return. Whereas, you know, I, uh, you know, one of the things I told you, you know, in inviting you to the podcast is that I really do want to, I, I think it's really important that people understand the good that Omaze is able to do because of how you harness, you know, modern technology, how you harness the tools that are at our disposal at this moment in time. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about, you know, the future of Omaze, like where you guys are going, what are the ambitions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for, for saying that, you know, the vision is to dream the world better. We we feel very lucky that we get to make dreams come true every single day, not just for the people that win the experiences, but for the beneficiaries, the causes. And so, you know, people getting resources and opportunities that weren't previously available to them. And, you know, we believe that optimism is the fuel for dreams. And as we discussed, optimism is a superpower. Optimism makes you 
realize that what you thought was impossible is actually possible. And we want to, so we not only want to be impactful from a fundraising perspective, but from scaling optimism, you know, in our, our kind of North star there is to be the first for-profit company and give a billion dollars to charity in a single year. You know, as I mentioned, we've already netted 150 million for charity. If we had chosen to be a nonprofit and we are limited by that, we would have, we would have, you know, we would have netted 5 million. So um, that's very much around for profit. And it's important for us, you know, we care a lot about being a highly impactful, highly profitable company because we think we can not only help people, but we can be a beacon for other entrepreneurs that realize that that's a false choice. Like choosing between doing well and doing good hurts the nonprofit sector. And I can go all through the history of why that is and this different social mores that we have govern the nonprofit sector that we don't have govern the for-profit sector and, and what that, how that hurts us as a society. But, you know, we believe that's part of our role is breaking through those norms. And so it creates another burden. You know, you, you don't just have to be a company that like develops a model that's really impactful. You, um, you have to, you know, or impactful from a business perspective, but you have to go through all these other things. Part of what we're doing in terms of like expanding that is like we've expanded from doing just celebrity experiences to we're offering stuff like travel the world or a country in a sprinter van or win a, you know, we're about to do win a four million pound penthouse in London. And part of our vision for that is like when we do something like that, you know, house in London, it'll go build a soccer field in a poor area in London or our art center in a poor area in London. And that'll be the Omega's art center. And if you donated, it would say Jeff Rosenthal on the bricks. Um, and, and so then you'll see, you'll feel a connection to that impact. You know, you'll learn that, or just like we did with you, you know, you guys and give power and the great work that you're doing We've we've helped build a couple of solar water farms. And, and so the donors names will be on the bricks. And so they'll feel that connection and they'll, they'll see how far their dollar goes in addition to also getting a chance to win something amazing. Um, and we think that'll add back to the ripple effect that we were talking about earlier. A lot of our listeners are earlier in their careers. They're, they're, they're startup founders and entrepreneurs, you know, like anything that comes to mind for you as advice, as takeaways, just like for those that are in that, you know, zero to one or one to two, you know, leg of the race. Yeah. I mean, I think one of them I kind of mentioned earlier is that everyone is scared. And so, if you feel scared about what you're going to do or what you're taking on, or you feel like maybe you don't have the, you know, the constitution to be an entrepreneur because you're feeling like that, just know that that's okay. Especially now, like things are, it's, it's hard. And there were so many moments where I, you know, I thought it was going to fall apart and sleepless nights and, and it almost did. And so, so give yourself permission, you know, be a better, be a best friend to yourself in that. Um, I think that's, and I would also recognize no matter like who you look up to or like you, you see those stories of people and profiles that, you know, are like seem like they've never made a mistake and have always been so bold. We, you know, we know some of those people that have those have been written about and know their realities. And it's just so that like everyone is that. So, you know, don't try to compare yourself and just give yourself permission there. Another thing is like the greatest fuel for persistence is serving others, you know? And so even if your company isn't mission driven um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, find ways to dedicate your, your actions to another. And you'll just untap of like a certain reservoir of energy that may not be there if it's just about yourself, you know, whether it's for your early employees or whether it's for you're doing this because maybe you want to make a lot of money, but then you want to use that money to help your parents or whatever it is, like finding a, a daily a capacity to think, you know, dedicate your actions, like people dedicate books is a, is a good thing. And then like, I guess maybe the last one I would say, and it took me a while to learn this was like, when you don't know what to do, sometimes the best thing to do is do nothing. What I say about that is like, we've, we constantly like as entrepreneurs, like there's this like sense you have to be like in perpetual motion. If you're not moving, you're dying. If you're not growing, you're dying. And so as a result, like sometimes when like big inflection point decisions come, you know, we're like, just like, what can I do to move this forward rather than like step back and like finding your kind of inner voice and you know, particularly if it's a really bigger decision on fundraising or hiring, whatever, you're going to get opinions from a lot of different people who are smart people that are going to tell you different things based off their own experiences. And sometimes if you just stop and like find stillness, whether it's through meditation or a workout or, or however you access it, you can get back in touch with your gut. And a lot of the best decisions get made that way. That's great advice. Well, Matt, thank you so much 
We really appreciate you being on the podcast. Your story is unbelievable. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing what you went through with us. Omaze is just such a wonderful, wonderful company. And, you know, when we talk about what our generation's entrepreneurs have built and done, this is this is prototypically what I hope can be held up as an example of what we're able to do with both our care for how we can change the world and utilizing the technology that's at our fingertips. So thank you again for being on the podcast and man, keep doing what you're doing. It's such important work. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for having me. It was, it was, I really enjoyed the conversation and thank you for continuing to put the love out. Yes, sir. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.